there was no collaboration between us. I know my son and daughter-in-law saying that, but we did not, along with JP and Natalie, they did a great job, uh, but we did not collude. Here's a word for you. We did not collude. Uh, and, and really, we could probably go home, but, but I've got to preach. I think <laughs> pastor might be watching, so we, we've got to do due diligence here. Um, but that essentially is the theme of what we're going to be talking about from Psalm chapter 39. Uh, so if you take your Bibles, uh, if you don't have a, a copy of the scriptures with you, we do have plenty of extras. Is there anyone who needs a copy of the scriptures um, that are around? Anybody? Don't, don't be ashamed. We just want everybody to be able to follow along. Uh, the psalm is kind of easy to find. You just sort of flop your Bible open, and you're probably in the middle somewhere, and you're probably pretty close. I think mine dropped open to Psalm or to Proverbs, so I had to go left to the psalm. Uh, there's an index at the beginning of the Bible that helps to find and locate things as well. So we're looking at uh, Psalm 39. Uh, for those of you who don't, aren't here often, when pastor's away, uh, he's asked us to handle uh, the Psalms. And so we, we do that, and we've uh, handled several of them. And the Lord directed my heart to Psalm 39 uh, here uh, this morning. Well, let's go ahead and we're going to read it together, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us here. So beginning at verse number 1, Psalm 39. The psalmist uh, said, uh, kind of interesting, I said, I will guard my way. So this is sort of David thinking in the, in, in, in the recesses of his own heart. Um, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. So there's something going on in his thinking, and he's afraid of sinning with his tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. And particularly, here's his interest, uh, particularly while the wicked are in my presence. There, there's something that's burning in his soul that, that's probably true of a lot of believers that, you know, there are just some things that you don't share with in his, in his verbiage, the wicked, in our verbiage, those who don't know Jesus yet. Um, it's sort of like your family. You know, you don't, you don't air all your dirty laundry, right, out in the world. And so that's how you want to feel this. That's the emotion of what's going on here in the heart of David. There's something about his faith, something that is being challenged in such a way that he's not even comfortable to sort of proclaim. And, and look how else it's affected him. He says, I was mute and silent. It's so problematic for me that I've even refrained from telling good. I, I, I can't even, in the presence of the wicked, proclaim the goodness of God. I just have to be silent because my mind is... is, is is just wrestling through this. I'm not free. And he says, my sorrow grows worse, in verse 2. Verse 3, my heart, here's a metaphor, uh, my heart, my faith, my, my understanding of how things are working out, God, under your auspices, it's hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. The more I thought about it, the more the fire burned. And then finally, he says, then I spoke with my tongue, probably apart from the wicked. And obviously, he, he speaks this to uh, Jed, Jeduthun, who is one of the music men in, in the nation of Israel. So he finally comes to some uh, resolution. 
And he opens his tongue now. And he says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold. I just want to stop for a minute when we see the word behold because it's really important about what we're ready to read. And if that wasn't enough, this sentence is followed by a salah, which supposedly, I think, uh, in, in Hebrew is pause. So you have made my, hand, my days as a hand breath, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. So in the measurement system of, of, he, of the Hebrew, Hebrew community, the hand breath was probably the smallest measurement. He's simply saying, my, my life, the, the number of years that I have, uh, is, is no longer than a hand breath. And surely every man at his best is merely, is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And then uh, verse 7, where we come to begin to re resolve a little bit or make sense. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I've been put into this state. I do not open my mouth. And, and what has sort of driven that muteness is this truth, is because it is you who have done it. I'm wrestling with you. So, so I'm not just going to go out there and, you know, this is, this, you're the one doing this, so I've, this is what's driving my muteness. I've got to work this out because if I want to be the kind of testimony and, and faithful person that you long for me to be, I've got to work this out. I've got to work on this. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand I am perishing. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. There it is again. And again, we're told to pause and meditate on that. That Man is a mere breath. You go up to each other and say, hello. That would probably be good for us. Because it would always point up a truth that we're told to really stop and think about. Um, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. For I'm a stranger with you. That's a peculiar statement. A sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So Psalm 39. Uh, I think it sort of combines uh, wisdom uh, along with this personal heartache. Uh, we're, we're really not told what exactly that is, but I think some of us can guess. And I'm obviously going to offer a, a, a thought here. And uh, uh, we'll look at this together. So by way of introduction, in the church, the group of people we are, we live in a special age together, there are two commands which the Spirit of God relentlessly pursues in each of our lives. Those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior that, those commands are twofold. Number one, love 
your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's command number one. And you can tell me what command number two is. It's what? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what God is doing in your life, period. He's not asking us to make a civilization. He's not asking you to make sure that you don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. He's not asking you to put a parapet on your rooftop so you don't fall off. He's not telling you to uh, make sure you make your way to the temple. Uh, and, and enjoy all the different festivals and feasts. He's not doing, he's not telling you to go out and kill your enemies. He wants you to do two things. Love God and love your neighbor. How's it going? What about in your marriage? How's it going with that loving your neighbor thing? How's it going with your children? How's it going with uh, difficult people at work? How's it going? Just know that God is pursuing that relentlessly. Relentlessly. And at times, like the psalmist, we feel with a certain rawness the relentlessness. Have you ever felt that? I have. The relentless work of the Spirit of God conforming me into the image of Christ. We grow exhausted and exasperated sometimes at our sins, our foibles, our faults, our character flaws. And these things can tend to dominate our consciousness. Jesus presses us to holy love all the time. He commands us to practice it. And if that press were not difficult enough, from a public appearance, it seems like nobody else is really taking it that seriously or really going through what we're going through. And we feel like an island as Jesus sort of presses, presses, love me, love your neighbor. For the truly born again, there are seasons of great spiritual distress. Times when Jesus is pressing this, love. The Holy Spirit acknowledges this in Psalm 39. And by way of a proposition or something that I'm trying to prove and argue with my soul this morning, that I think surfaces <coughs> excuse me, from the psalm, it's this truth, that enduring faith in hot-hearted moments is the product of a fact, a profound consolation, and a fundamental consideration. In other words, if you're going to persevere in faith, this is, this is a crisis of faith for David. This is a hot, burning heart over a question that he can't just go out and throw up on Facebook and we all can sort of discuss it. No, this is something very personal, very deep. And if we're going to persevere, we like David, we like David, have to understand that perseverance is a product of a fact profound consolation and a fundamental consideration. So first of all, this morning, uh, a serious look at life for the believer reveals a simple fact 
that puts it all in perspective. And what is that fact? And I want you to write this down. Number one, here's the simple fact. Life is short, comma, God alone gives meaning to life. Life is short. God alone gives meaning to life. So you can already probably figure out where this is going. The process whereby the Lord presses us to come to know this truth is a difficult one. And it's a truth we really see sort of uh, uh, set up in verses 1, 2, and 3. It's a truth that really is laid bare in verses 5 through 7. The process whereby the Lord presses us to come to know this truth and really to believe that it alone is true. It's the singular nature of this truth that's so difficult. That it's the Lord alone who gives meaning to life. Meaning. Fundamental meaning to life. That's the challenge. And it's a difficult one to, to, to understand this and to grow up into it. Verse 1 tells us that it's a lonely lesson to learn. It, it, it's a lesson that we, we, we wrestle with in the immaterial inner part of our hearts. And we, it's not something we're always just sharing with everybody and posting on Facebook. It's truly, it's where we really wrestle it out. This singular reality this profound fact. Verses 2 through two, 3 teaches it's a lesson that has few parallels in the life of a believer. As we wrestle with it, it short-circuits the tongue in proclaiming the goodness of God. It inflames the immaterial part of who you are, the burning heart. Verses 4 through 5 teaches that it requires me to make a study a study of the most uncomfortable thought in human experience. And that is this, that I'm going to die. It forces me to study this, that I'm transient. This is not all there is. There's something so much more. And, 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 and it's for God to, to get us to a point where we really understand that He alone... He alone defines the meaning of life. It forces, it requires us to make a study of this fact. Well, what do you say, Pastor? It's a study? Well, yeah. It's something I must be made to do, right? No one does it naturally. I don't hear us coming in and going up to Gordon, my friend here, say, Gordon, we're all going to die one day. You know, I mean, it's, it's just not natural to the human condition. You know, God has created us eternal beings, uh, but the reality is sin and death at this time will require a separation of our immaterial part from our material part. And this at once is the judgment of God for sin, but it, it as God always does it, it, judgment kisses mercy because it's the very vehicle by which we are freed from this sin-cursed world and we enjoy the glories of the next. Uh, I think Paul uses the metaphor of the seed the seed has to die if it's going to be the oak tree. It has to split open. And that's a beautiful metaphor. But, but uh, if we're going to get through these heart-inflamed times, we've got to think a little bit about death. A death. Uh, uh, the text told us, behold. Uh, this is something we're to take a long, lingering look at. There, there are few things in the scriptures 
that we're told to take a long, lingering look at, that, that the word behold is used. Here's one of them. Behold, your life is no longer than a handbreadth. That's not very long. Salah. Stop and think about that. Study that. And uh, it's like a breath. I want you to stop and think about that. This is what God is, uh, the Spirit of God is working in David's thinking, and he's sharing it with us right now. And he's saying, look, as we do this, the end goal is persevering faith. It's persevering faith. In verse 6, it requires some very difficult conclusions about my life. Well, surely every man walks about as a phantom. Now, that, that's not like, ooh, spooky phantom. Uh, the idea of a phantom is it appears, and then it's what? It has influence, and then it's influences. You have influence now. One day your influence is gone on this earth. It's no longer germane. You know? You know, even the most famous of us who are written in history books, yeah, the details are lost by and large. And uh, it's gone. So, so whatever we're doing, let, let's not get too caught up in what's, what's going to be gone, right? That's, that's the warning label here. Um, so, so we're a phantom. Influence is done. It says here, surely... Uh, they make an uproar for what? So, so this word uproar, have, do you get passionate about something? I do. You know, I, I get passionate about things. You're passionate about things. I know all of, the majority of you, I know you pretty well, and there's some things that you really have hobbies about, you really love to do, you're really concerned about. You know, you may be concerned about America, you may be concerned about the destination of all that's going on, all the craziness. Some of you... I'm looking out, I see Jacob, he might love piano. There, there's passions, there's music, there's, there's all these things. Some of you love health care. Some of you are passionate about helping people and passion. You uproar in your earthly existence. Did David uproar? Sure he did. But what was his conclusion? Even in your most passionate things in life, in time there... They're nothing. They're nothing. Now, that's not to say don't be passionate. It's not saying that. It's not saying don't be, you know, proactively involved in life. That's not what it's saying. This is dealing with the question of when, when our hearts are burning in relationship to our faith. And what is all going on here anyway? This is a truth that we need to make a study of. The riches you amass. How about you that have masses of riches and you've given your life to that? What does it say? What don't you know? Verse number, I'm sorry, verse number six. You can read it. Yeah, you, you gather them and you don't know who's what. Yeah, yeah, you know, if you're a Republican, probably all the Democrats are going to get it. <laughs> if you're a Democrat, probably all the Republicans are going to get it. They just, they're good at that. They're good at getting money. So, so, so the point is live for that stuff, but, but, David's saying, when you're having a crisis of faith, you're not going to find any answers in any of that. In your uproaring? In your money? In all the things that... Your influence? None of that really is helpful. So verse number seven. 
here it is. If I could just put it in, you know, the Hebrew here. Um, the idea here is my hope is in you. Um, what, what the Hebrew is trying to communicate there is the idea that God is the one who gives meaning in life. That's the idea. This isn't just sort of, oh, my hope is in you. No, this is, this is a, a complete turn in Hebrew. This is, this is, this is how things are. So, so the point he's making is, having my way will not bring meaning and significance to my life. Can you just write that down? Write that down. You know, write that down on the flyleaf of your Bible. I'll sign it afterward. <laughs> Getting your own way will not give you meaning and significance in life, whether you're passionate about it, whether you're influential, or whether you have lots of money. It's not going to give you meaning in life. It's not. God alone defines meaning in life. That's it, alone, singularly, singularly. We exist for his pleasure, Revelation 4.11. And oh, by the way, we exist for his pleasure for all eternity. And this perhaps gives us a, an inkling into understanding why God is so relentless and he will never leave us alone as we, he encourages us to consistently and habitually confess this truth that God, you alone give meaning in life. And he continues to revisit that because we are constantly changing, constantly being influenced by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. God is always taking us here. And he has to because we're going to be in front of him for all eternity. And he's going to get this right. You're going to feel very comfortable in front of him for all eternity. If you're a true believer and you get this work done. And that's where you want to be comfortable. That's a long time. You know, verse 8 teaches that deliverance is needed. Uh, 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 deliverance is needed. I have a natural tendency, David said. I need to be delivered. I need to be delivered. My natural tendency when I forget that God only gives meaning to life is to transgress, God, what you have told me to do or fail to do the things you've asked me to do. My values are skewed to values of this world rather than values that are infinite and eternal. I need deliverance. When I live apart from you, complications abound. Hearts are burning and inflamed. Second idea there in verse 8 is, is uh, this. I have a natural tendency when I forget that only God gives meaning to life is to participate in the reproach of the foolish. That's what I do. I spout foolishness. Uh, just sort of a macrocosm example of that. You know, in the church today, we're told in terms of divorce rates, you know, that we, we sort of mirror the divorce rates of the world. And if, 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 if marriage is the most intense place where we're learning how to love, if that's true, and I think it is, you're there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Nobody knows you like your spouse knows you. Nobody. And God is there, and he commands you to love. That's the only germane thing in the end of the day. He doesn't ask you how you feel about that. He doesn't ask you what you think about that. He doesn't ask you to converse and dialogue with him on how you feel that ought to be. 
he says, husbands love older women, teach younger women how to love their wives, or you love their husbands. Love. That's what that relationship's all about. And, and because God's people fail to remember that it's God alone who defines your significance in life, no, whether my spouse does all the things I want him to do, that's what gives me significance in life. No, whether I'm treated fairly, that's what gives me. Oh, you put in whatever the excuse is. We rush off again to get divorced. And when we fail to be under the pressure, the God-ordained pressure, to learn that you're not a lover yet. You've got a long way to go. And that's what marriage is all about. And I know that's heavy, and I apologize for being heavy on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but that's just one example. And so the church reflects the divorce rates of the world because we participate. We are not the foolish, but we, we, we make me, we, we, we have the reproach of the foolish. You don't want that reproach. You want to be that old person, you know, 90 years old, you and your wife sitting there, just so... What do they call that psychologically when you're so dependent on it? Codependent. So in love. In love. Love what true love is. And you're there. And you have gathered around you a godly heritage and seed. Isn't right? That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. So anyway, you guys get the idea. Don't partake of the reproach of the foolish. Remember that in the heat, when the heart burns... And I would say my heart has burned when Gloria and I are trying to figure out how to love each other. That is one of the most burning times, I would say, in faith. God, what am I doing here? What's going on here? Why is it so difficult? Why was it so easy a week ago, and now today it's so inflamed when nothing's really changed? What, what's going on here? It's dynamic. God's always pushing and pressing, and he always will. So God, help me to remember, as I'm going to come to a conclusion here, help me to make sure that the conclusion I come to, the conclusion I come to has as its very base that you alone define significance in life. Make sure I do that, please, God. And not my felt needs or whatever else may combat with that. So you get that. All right, transition. When your heart is hot within, when your faith is in crisis moment, when the Lord... <clears throat> is pressing you to love far beyond what you believed to be your capacity. And I encourage you to this. Confess in prayer this fact that life is short. Only God who brings meaning, it's only God who brings meaning to life. Confess that to him. Invite him in. Talk to him and tell him this. Secondly, the psalmist recalls a profound consolation. So what's the consolation? Point number two. Well, here it is. Are you ready for it? It's profound. Verse number 9b. It is God himself who's doing it. I'm gonna, you, got, you, kinda get, you miss this stuff in Psalms because we read it too fast. This is profound. So what is the profound consolation that can settle your burning heart in these times when you're being pressed to love, when you're being pressed in faith? What can finally settle the questions that we dare not ask out loud but we have in our heart? Before those who have, who have yet to, we don't ask them in the, in, in, in the 
spiritually mature people yet or, or even in, among the unsaved. We're afraid to ask it. We're afraid to verbalize it. What truth is so big and so relevant that when seriously considered, it settles the unsettling realities of life and questions of faith for the believer? You know what it is? It's this consolation that God himself, whatever's going on in your life, he's doing it. He's doing it. He's there. He's there. So what does that mean? Well, it means first and foremost, there's a living, breathing, warm, personal God who is in control of all that is going on in your life right now. Amen. Contra to your faithless idea that nobody cares and God isn't interested. God himself is doing it. It means omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. The one who is absolutely almighty. He is the one who is doing this. Contra to someone who is trying hard but just doesn't quite have what it takes to see it through. Or someone who just simply has a good heart but no real purpose or ability. It means that the very one who created each and every cell in your body and every atom in the universe, who holds it all together, he is doing this. Not someone who just kind of sets things in motions and hopes for the best. It means that the one who inhabits all of eternity is doing this, contrary to someone who is just simply here today then gone tomorrow. He is doing this. It means that the one who clearly understands my purpose for existence is controlling everything and is bringing everything in line to that purpose for which he has created me. He is the one that's doing this. Verse 10 and 11, plagues, oppositions, reproofs, seeing all of my earthly possessions that are precious to me, uh, 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 even my own mortality in life, all those things are all sourced in the God of heaven. I may long for deliverance, and that's natural. The psalmist understands that. He himself longs for deliverance. But I must never think that they have no purpose and no design by the God of heaven who controls all. So I'm not here by chance or some cosmic accident, nor am I here simply by my own doing. I am here by God's sovereign decree. Even my sin, foibles, faults, and character flaws, with all of their consequences, are encompassed, encompassed in his loving plan when we learn to respond appropriately. He tells me how to think, feel, and respond in each of them. Proverbs 24, 16, the righteous man falls how many times? That's a complete number. You name the number. That's inconsequential to the God of heaven. The question is what? Does he get back up again? That's what God's interested in. Amen. Difficult times in my life are not somehow outside of or even tangential to his plan and purpose for me. Yes, it is true that I get myself into all kinds of messes, but I was not there alone. And I was not hidden from God. Mark that down in those times. God was with me every step. Nothing is hidden from him, Hebrews 4.13. Good, bad, and some embarrassingly ugly. 
You are doing this, God, and you are using this time to discipline me to be more like Jesus. You are all wise and good and have clearly instructed me on how you want me to respond in love. So when my heart burns, when my faith is undergoing a crisis, when the Lord presses me beyond what I think my capacity to love him and to love others may be, may I confess in prayer a second truth, not only the brevity of life and that God alone gives meaning to life, May I confess this truth that God, you yourself are doing this. And that makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. And finally this morning, we have a fundamental consideration. A fundamental consideration. Verse 12, it is God that defines identity. It is God that defines identity. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you. That's interesting. A sojourner like all my fathers. We are strangers with God. You believe that? This is your fundamental identity. Uh, you may be man, woman. You may be old, young. You may be middle-aged. You may be rich, poor. You may be... Heinz 57 variety, or you may be ethnically, I don't want to use the wrong, like good or straight or right or <laughs> pure. I don't know what the words are. Um, but fundamentally, if you're a believer, what, what trumps all of those identities is you are a stranger with God in terms of this world, this life, this system, this time, this reality. You're a stranger with God. We also learn that prayer from this passage from verse 12 and 13, prayer, again, is the only context that the Psalms ever offer to rehearse these truths. Um, it's in prayer that we work out these difficult enigmas in our life. Facebook and friends are not the context here. Those are not the contexts where the most difficult kind of conundrums can be properly worked out. It is in prayer quieted before the God of heaven in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where we go. Why is this the only context? Because this is the method God has designed us to communicate with him. Yes, communication with these very sensitive topics in your heart can be difficult, but God can handle it. He wants to hear it. He's not impressed by platitudes. He wants more. He wants you to go deeper in love. And it's okay to talk to him. Now we can use the illustration of a marriage again. You know, husbands and wives. You know, the, we, we, we all just want to kind of be happy-go-lucky. Or with our children. We just want to all kind of just get along and be fun and happy and... But, but the reality is, in that context, it's so critical at times to sit down and talk through very difficult realities and where affections and values lie. And good homes and families learn how to do that well. And they aren't afraid of that. And they understand that, although those may be the, the immediate realities, that there is a larger reality of all the things that we're talking about here, what God is doing. 
We're not offensive to each other, but we work it out. We talk it out. We get that. Again, why is God such an effective person to have these difficult conversations of crisis? The faith, rather than a friend or even Facebook. We could, there's so many passages in the Bible. Psalm 56, 10 and 11. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid what man can do to me. Who do you trust with the severe health concerns of your life? Isn't it the doctor who spends time getting to know you, who takes account of you with a level of detail and precision? How about the millions of dollars you have for retirement? Who do you entrust that to? Don't you place investments in the hands of people who can really help or who have no care, or, 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 or do you choose somebody who has no care to understand who you really are? No. You want somebody who takes time, who understands, who... who who, and then to, to, to God's level, who takes every tear and holds it in a bottle. And there's no more tender expression, I would argue, in all of the human language than that expression. That's how tender and loving God is. This verse uh, tells us that God takes every tear into account, every one that we shed, like no one else in the whole universe. This is the one we want to go to with our crisis. This is the one. Can I say this? It's high time that we embrace our strangeness. You are a stranger with God. You are a sojourner with all of the fathers who have gone before, all the believers who have gone before. I should feel like a stranger in a way when I'm thinking and working out my salvation with fear and trembling. And when I do feel that way, I need to know I'm in good company. I'm with God and with those who believe who have gone on before me. They too have wrestled with being so different and wrestling so hard when no one else seems to care or do. We could look at Abraham who, remember, he had promised and got nothing. In fact, the only thing he got in the promised land, he had to the land that was promised to him, all he ever got of it, he had to pay for a burial plot for his wife. You think that caused a crisis of faith for Abraham? God, you said I should get all of this. I can't even get a, a burial plot for my wife out of this in my lifetime. What's this all about? Well, God knew that he had something very special for Abraham after his eyes dimmed and shut on this earth. He goes on for all eternity, and it's amazing. And a plan in the, in the Messiah, I mean, we see it. Abraham never saw it. That guy probably had a crisis of faith every day. His heart was burning. I think he had 12 times in his life when God revealed truth to him. Can you imagine only having your Bible on your lap 12 times in your lifetime? He had crises, but he persevered. How did he persevere? I'll tell you how he persevered. Uh, uh, number one, he, he knew that, that, uh, that, that God, only God, gave meaning to life. He knew that well. He knew that very well. And he rehearsed that all the time. He had no details, but he rehearsed that all the time. He knew his life was short. He studied that reality. Remember, how did he know, what does the Bible say? He uh, that, well, this is Moses. Why did he identify with the people of God rather than Egypt? Because he numbered his 
He numbered his, his days. That's how. So he got it. He figured it out. He figured it out. And then they both reckoned the reality that they're strangers. Now, we have a lot more detail, a lot more information in the person of Christ, but, but it's fundamentally the same reality. And we have a lot of neat pictures painted of our future hope, and that's wonderful. We have a blessed hope. But it's tough when you still are, you know, experiencing some other things. Um, so let's embrace our strangeness. So in conclusion, to affirm Christ's likeness is the goal. Can I say this? That's not hard. Uh, we do that in our mission statement. If you've been in our membership class, you affirm that. But can I say this? Really, anybody can do that. Anybody can affirm that. Our problem is that we think it's strange and abnormal when Christ's likeness is actually occurring in our life. It is for this tendency that the Holy Spirit gives us this psalm. We know we are not alone. We are in good company in these difficult seasons. Can I say this? Obedience is a very simple proposition, isn't it? We acknowledge that. The challenge, though, is that we flag and stop obeying. We heed the arch enemy of obedience. Rationalization. That's the worst. Particularly when we're in the heat of the battle. It is for this reason that the author of Hebrews identifies the need of the church. It's not more data. We have all the data we need. We have in the scriptures. Knowing the facts or being able to read and know, and know the commands are not the problem. The problem is our failure to endure. While Jesus is changing our character, all the while our old sin nature screams in protest and tries to rationalize. Hebrews 10.36 says, We have need of endurance. And that's true. Endurance is always found in the context of prayer. It's the lesson we have. So perhaps this morning you're, you're, you have a heavy weight and if you really played the way out, you'd realize that God is calling you to love. He's either calling you to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or he's calling you to love your neighbor with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It will always boil out in the church age to that primary concern. That's what's being pursued. And you don't feel like you have the capacity to love in the situation which you're in anymore. Uh, your relationship, your health, your financial situation, you, 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 you're just done. You're done. And yet, guess what? God continues to relentlessly pursue you. And he wants you to bow the knee, come to him in prayer, and he wants you to testify and talk out these three very simple realities. The fact that God, my life is short, and you alone give me significance. So what am I left with? Well, I'm left with obeying what you have asked me to do. I'm not left with my feelings or what I think. When that's all you're left with. So Lord, help me to obey. Uh, the profound consolation. God, I thank you that you're the one who's doing this. And you're gonna, we're going to be together for all eternity. And somehow... This is going to be good. You're, you're preparing me for something. And I confess that, and I thank you. And then, and then Lord, uh, this fundamental consideration, uh, uh, the truth, 
truth that uh, you define my identity. I'm a stranger with you. So may God help us. Uh, this isn't so much a, a message for those of you who are here who may not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but maybe you've heard uh, and identified struggle. Struggle believers, people who love Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they wrestle too. They struggle. But what we fundamentally enjoy is these three truths. We know that God has forgiven us, that God is with us, that God is working his eternal purpose in us, not as in an adversarial way, but in the way that a father encourages his son or daughter to be more mature. That's a wonderful truth, and that's a truth you can have. Struggle is edemic. Struggle is in the, uh, the warp and woof of your human experience. The only difference between a, somebody who loves Jesus and has given him his life and those who don't is we have a real good understanding of who is doing this, why he's doing it, and how much love he has for us. It's amazing. And that love has been profoundly expressed in the cross where Jesus died for you because of your sin. Uh, that's what is so offensive to God. And if you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, the Bible says you're condemned already. And then you go, oh, that's sort of offensive. Well, you know, if somebody came up to me and my son sang up here, Nathan, and the first thing he said to me was, Pastor Ken, I hate your son, Nathan. I just want to get that off the table. I don't believe a word he says. And then, oh, by the way, I think you're kind of a, a nice guy. I, ex I, I, I confess you exist, and I appreciate your great preaching. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Would I ever be able to get by that first, that first? No. So it's no wonder that God says, look, if you deny my son and what he's done for you on the cross, we're pretty much done here. That's, that's it. So we would encourage you to, to rethink the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if, if you haven't read the Bible, we'd encourage you to, to take a look at the Gospel of John. Just read it. Read it with the person that brought you. I'm sure they would love to encourage you to understand who the person of Jesus is. And understand the amazing love and care he has for you. He wants to adopt you into his family. And take away your, your, your lifelong contest with trying to make it on your own. God has given you a wonderful consolation in his son, Jesus Christ. Please take that up. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we as your people, we, we, we confess that we struggle, that we have crises of faith, that our hearts burn. And Lord, even as I look out at the audience, I know I see them, I, I, I know them. Those who have recently lost loved ones and their hearts, I'm sure, burn in the crisis of faith, those who are dealing with chronic illness and every morning wake up with an old sin nature that's screaming out, why? And, and the new nature having to settle that again. Lord, the marriages that are struggling and wrestling. Oh God, help us to, to be lovers, to, to, to rectify, uh, to confess uh, that you alone, dear God, are you're doing this. You alone are the, are the one who gives meaning to life and that we're strangers with you. And, uh, 
allow that to settle, all the buts, the, the ifs, the should'ves, the shouldn't'ves. Set those aside and, and orient our hearts to simply trying to obey today in a way that's pleasing to you. And, and you'll settle all that other stuff. You'll settle the questions of justice. You'll settle the questions of fairness. You'll settle all those other things, if not in this life, in the next. And so we entrust ourselves to you, dear Father. Help us, we pray. We love you. Uh, we go now uh, in the strength of the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>